You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey Dave, how are you doing today? Not bad, Nick. How are you? Podcast Friday on a holiday weekend. Yeah, we're back back on schedule doing this on Fridays. And uh, yeah, looking forward to a long weekend. Nothing between uh, you and I and holiday drinks other than this podcast. <laughs> so it better be good. <laughs> Muscle through, right? <laughs> We actually have a good topic today. Uh, we're going to do a book review of a book that I read not too long ago called The Soul of Money yeah. by Lynn Twist. Yeah, this isn't one I've read, so I'm looking forward to hearing about Well, this. hopefully after this, I can inspire you to read it because yeah. I did really appreciate it. So a little background on kind of the book and the author. So Lynn Twist is a global activist, and she actually founded uh, the Soul of Money Institute, which has a lot of different resources. If you're interested in taking a look at some of her work there, she actually has an interesting background that they talk about in the book of being in charge of some global nonprofits and just kind of talking about her travels around the world. Um, Her main role was that of a fundraiser. So just, you know, asking people for money all throughout the country and her big one, at least that she writes about in this, is just kind of trying to solve the world's hunger crisis. And it was, you know, a lot of this is based on just in her interest in viewing different cultures in kind of how they deal with money and what role it plays. And then obviously the big disparity between, you know, money in the U.S. and the abundance of it versus some of the places where she went in remote parts of the the world that uh, money wasn't even really, you know, the same thing. And, And kind of seeing the interest in how money was, you know, introduced into some of those different places and how that affected things and it's kind of the lessons that she learned there. So <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So it was in in kind of, you know, her overall theme and, and kind of the reason to read a book like this is really it's for people who want to examine their relationship with money and how it affects their lives. And we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast before about Mm -hmm. behavioral economics and finance and how money really affects you Um, as financial planners. That's of foremost importance to you and I, Dave. And so it was an interesting take on kind of how she's seen this in in several different parts of the world um, and and kind of what her takeaways for. So definitely a recommend if you're someone who wants to kind of improve your, or learn more about your relationship with money and and kind of improve on that. So, so how does she go about setting the stage? So a great question. She kind of, you know, her overall take is as humans, especially in the United States, we kind of take the view of money in the form of scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. And so scarcity, and she kind of outlines a couple of different myths of scarcity. And one is there's not enough. The second one is that more is better. And the third one is that's just the way it is, 
right? So it was interesting to me reading this because I felt those things at different times throughout my life and throughout my career. And it's just kind of an interesting way to think of, you know, if you think of capitalism and you think of, you know, the, the world that we live in, there's always this sense that there's not enough, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and ultimately more is better. And kind of the problem with that is, if there's not a, if there's never enough, right? What is enough, right? What drives mm-hmm. a, somebody like Jeff Bezos to continue to make more money, right? What right. drives some of these major corporations and these billionaires to continue to make more money? Right. And interestingly right. enough, I've been kind of a little bit obsessed with this idea of, you know, what's enough for a while. And some of that came out of another book that we reviewed, which is The Psychology of Money. And if you remember, Morgan Housel told a story in there. It was actually, I can't remember the people. There was a, a famous author and some financier. Mm-hmm. You probably should have looked that up before we started having this conversation, Dave, but... <laughs> We'll, we'll throw that in the show notes whenever I find it. But it was kind of so the, the setting was they were at a dinner party, and the financier was, you know, obviously made a bunch of money. And somebody came up to the author and said, you know, you won't believe how much money so and so makes. And, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, astounding how much, you know, how much did you make on your last book sale, which was, you know, this prominent author and, and obviously had a lot of money and very good sales. And it was just a fraction of what this person in finance was making. And and the author goes and and kind of goes and says, but I have something that he doesn't have and that's enough. Oh, right. It was uh, Joseph Heller. Okay. um, Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Catch 22. That's right. Yes. Yes. I remember the, the anecdote now. Yep. And I always, it kind of struck me of, you know, what is enough yeah. and, and how does that relate to my personal life and, and do I have enough? And in reading this book, it just kind of showed me that the way that our world is set up is we're taught from a very young age that there's not enough, right? We're always right. looking to work more, to make more, to make more money. Yeah. And, you know, as financial planners for a number of years and working with lots of different people with lots of different backgrounds and financial wherewithal, you really do know, like from a practitioner's level, that it's all relative, right? Yeah. Oh, 100%. One, one, one person's enough as another person's barely getting by. Yeah. And, and it's all, a lot of it is psychology. A lot of it is just what, how you have framed your life. And it's, and it's, and the interesting thing is, and, and again, you know, I'm a little bit anecdotal, but there's, there's stories out there, you know, about surveys of, of even like very wealthy people that still consider themselves middle-class because there's always somebody richer than they are. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, just, you know, speaks to that mindset, that scarcity idea that we, we, like we're programmed that I, and I don't think this is necessarily a flaw. It's, it's more of a relic of, evolution in a way Mm -hmm. that, you know, we always have to come at the world as though everything's scarce and we need to, we always need to be storing nuts for the winter. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, you know, eat the, eat the raspberries on the vine while you can right away, because you may not know where that next meal is going to come from. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I, and I relate some of the enough too. We have a conversations with a lot of people when it comes to investing, right? Like what's mm-hmm. enough of a return? Like, 
Do you mm-hmm. really need to do 15%? Are you willing to take on that risk or can you meet all your goals doing 5%? Yeah. Maybe we yeah. shouldn't take that risk. Yeah. Or, or another example is I, I really want to retire from my job. And, but I think I could, I, but I, but I plan to work, you know, I'm going to work part-time or I'm going to do, I'm going to do something. I, I can't stand the job I'm in, but I'm going to go do this, you know, and then we crunch the numbers and basically show them, well, you know, you're 66 right now. And there's really no difference between being done now and being done when we had planned and you're retiring anyway, you know, you can go back to, you can go back and work part-time. It makes my job easier as your financial planner, right? But what's the, right. you know, you don't need to go back, you don't need to go back to work to make Dave's life easier, you know, to make the numbers work you know, even better than they already work. Yes. Yeah. What do you, what do you want to do? Absolutely. So, you know, in, in talking in the book and then kind of setting the stage of this scarcity and, and, part of the problem of it is sometimes we get so wrapped up in there's not enough that we hold on to everything that we have so tightly that it actually, you know, it it kind of ruins us from the inside out, if you will, when Mm -hmm. everything is bottled up so tight, right? Like Mm -hmm. if we always feel like there's not enough, we're never willing to give any, we're never willing to slow down or work less or Mm -hmm. spend more time with family because we have this, just this belief that there's not enough, right? Um, and it's a it's a zero sum game, right? If if mm-hmm. I don't have enough, that means the other person, you know what I'm. So the other person can't have enough either, right? Like it's a competition, then, and it really yeah. leads to some pretty bad outcomes when you th- view money in the form of scarcity. Her solution is having what she calls a sufficiency mindset, and that is just kind of how we can change our relationship with money to put it in the proper context. And I think of this in terms of, you know, money as a means to an end, right? It can help us get more of what we need and less of what we think. Sometimes many of us already have more than what we need, but our focus is on not having enough. So it doesn't allow us to appreciate it, right? And that's a big problem in today's Mm -hmm. world of, you know, we're so focused on what's next that we don't stop and enjoy what we have right now right? Like how often do you, are we grateful for what we currently have? We're, you know, we're constantly programmed to kind of look for what's next or what the projections Mm -hmm. are. And this is really challenging in financial planning because as planners, we're always trying to help people focus on how do we build enough for retirement, right? How do we do all these things so that in five and 10 and 15 years from now, you're in a place where you can do what you want. And, and the kind of the approach, and, and this is why it's so important for us, Dave, and in the way that we kind of structure our process around having that life planning mm-hmm. start to financial planning, right? We, well, the first thing that we want to do with all of our clients and find out what's important to them, right? What is, what do you want more of in life? Like, what do you want to get out of life? What's going to make you excited to get up out of bed every day? And then we can figure out how do we deliver more of that now, but also still be able to deliver whatever that thing's going to look like in five or 10 or 15 years from now, right? One of the first things that pops into my head on that is the common denominator of all that is time. Yeah. You know, and, and it may take money to do something that you want to do, but it definitely takes time. If you spend all your time making money, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you, you've already spent the resource that you can't, uh, negotiate, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and so many people struggle with that when it comes to. No, we all do. Yeah. You know, the, the, the sense of we got to work more, we got to work harder. And that's just kind of what's always been instilled in <laughs> us. Um, and we don't like stop and smell the roses. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, not, and that's not only in money and in financial planning, it's just in life in general, we're so busy. And, and that's why I think a lot of people, if you think about the pandemic and how that really changed people, it really got people to slow down for a while and just yeah. like, yeah, you were forced to slow down and, and to kind of take stock of where you're at. And there's, we've had so many stories of clients of, you know, friends and family and relatives that expressed like how, you know, yeah, it was terrible, uh, but it also <laughs> stopped everybody and, and made them really appreciate what they have or, or right. figure out kinda, what they wanted to have. And it was it a kinda, reset. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, as we get back into the swing of things, I think that um, with the official end of the pandemic happened a couple of weeks ago that they announced, right? <laughs> it's now an endemic or something like that. I don't speak that language, but as, as things get back to the way they were before, hopefully people can you know slow down and, and really think about those mm-hmm. lessons that they had during that time frame. The opposite of the the myths of scarcity are the truths of sufficiency. And one of them is that money is like water. What we talked about before is with, if there, you know, if we hold on to money, right. If we hoard it because there's never enough, Mm -hmm. um, it's just like water. If you pull up water and it just sits there, but you know, bad things happen to to sitting water, right. Where if you let Mm -hmm. it flow, the water can maintain. That's kind of the analogy of, (laughs) you know, being able to, give money away and, and being able to do different things instead of, you know, hoarding it. Um, okay. it's, it's really kind of one of those principles of sufficiency, right? And the other one is what you appreciate appreciates, right? And so mm-hmm. how you deal with money and, and really things in life, if you're appreciating, if you're taking the time and being grateful for them, that's really going to pay dividends down the line. Okay. Um, and the third one is that collaboration creates prosperity. So um, <laughs> just that, you know, in pretty much every study of happiness that I've ever seen, one of the principal tenets is relationships, right? And it, so it kind of speaks to that, you know, collaboration, um, working with people, building those relationships <laughs> um, can really make a big difference when it comes to money, money issues. Yeah. It's um, brings to mind a uh, piece we, we pushed on the blog uh, a couple of days ago where we talked about uh, Warren Buffett's comments at the uh, close of the Berkshire Hathaway shareholding meeting. And one of the things he reminded everyone is he's known, never known anybody who was truly kind who died without friends, but he's known plenty of people with lots of money who died without friends. Yeah. And I, you know, I thought that was, uh, and I know it's an aside here, but it kind of connects to what you're saying about relationships being the key. Here's one of the wealthiest men in the world who's a money making machine when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, reminding everyone that the, is what, and, and the question he was given was, how do you avoid mistakes? Mm-hmm. You know, and, it with, and I think the young man that was asking it was expecting some, you know, mathematical formula for figuring out the value of a company and when to buy it. And instead he, <laughs> instead he was told to, to remember that uh, it's not all about money. So I think one of the, one of the big takeaways that I had from this book as well and kind of wrapping things up is, you know, we, we get to choose how 
to use our money. And we can make ourselves heard with how we use money. And there's a whole mm-hmm. section on this that might actually lead to another podcast. But it's about, you know, what do you take a stand for, right? Like you can use your, you get to decide how you use your money. And I mean that from as simple as how do you spend your money, right? How are mm-hmm. you, you know, are you willing to pay more for something that for, you know, let's say a great example that comes to mind that's been in the news a lot recently is Patagonia and their founder basically giving their company away to a trust to help improve the environment, right? Like, obviously, if you look at their stuff, it is not inexpensive, right? Like I can go buy a t-shirt on Amazon for $2 or I could buy one for $40 at Patagonia. And so, but I get to make that decision, right? Like if I want to mm-hmm. support, if I believe in the things that that company believes in, I can spend the $40 or, right. you know, I could buy the $2 t-shirt from Amazon that, you know, maybe has not as good of a track record environmentally or where it came from. And, and right. so just thinking about different things like that, that you can do and how you use your money can actually make you feel a lot better about where you are and, and, and really kind of have set that example. And that's just one, like, obviously you can give to charity, you can support charities, local, you know, national, there's a lot of different ways to do that. But that's one of the, the lasting takeaways is not to hold on so tightly. And, and oftentimes, as financial planners, we get kind of wrapped up into you know, well, what your expenses and your budget are. And obviously there's some ways that you can cut, but you know, constantly reminding clients there's give and take, right? Like if, if it's super important for you to have high quality clothing from a sustainable company, like that can be a part of how you budget and do things and maybe mm-hmm. cost somewhere else. Um, but making those personal decisions and, and not always trying to do what's least expensive to your bottom. Right. Well, and we, we often say, you know, show me your budget and I can tell what your priorities are. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, usually we're saying that in the context of, are you really saving for things? Are you, you know, not spending beyond your means, but you're, you know, this is kind of taking it a step further. Are you, are you spending money in line with your values and, uh, you know, showing, you know, you, you can see what somebody cares about by whether they're buying the Patagonia shirt or the Amazon. Yeah. Knockoff. Yeah. Interesting. That's good. So, and then lastly, you know, another interesting tidbit that came out of this book is just the, so one of the stories was, I think it was the dot-com bust in, you know, 2000s, late 90s, 2000, and kind of just that conversation of crisis, right? And and Mm -hmm. her big point was, Yes, we lost a lot of money as a part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it allowed us to then sit down and really take stock of what we had and be grateful that it really didn't affect them in terms of like they weren't worried mm-hmm. about having enough money to for food or mm-hmm. you know. And then what she found, which I thought that was super interesting, is that even though that was a relatively short-term minor thing, there are people that just continued to be in that conversation of crisis, right? They, mm-hmm. they you know, it's kind of like that something bad happens and you're glued to the TV and you never turn it off and you're just stuck in that conversation of crisis versus like actually taking a step back 
and just taking stock of where you are and being grateful for the fact that yes, bad things happened and maybe your net worth went down by 20, 30%. But at the end of the day, it didn't really affect you. And the sooner you got out of that conversation of crisis, the better off you were just in terms of your own mental well-being and, and just kind of reframing how that really affected people versus the people that were continuing to be in that conversation of crisis. And I just thought that mm -hmm. was another great reminder of bad things are going to happen and the markets are going to go up and down. The more you focus on and, and the more you're grateful for what you have and how that really didn't like put you in complete ruins, the sooner you're going to get out of that, the easier it's going to be for you to withstand and wait until things come back and, and the better that whole trajectory is going to be. And I thought that was just a great example and a great reminder of not only these things are, you know, typically short-term in nature, but also here's a good way to kind of think through it from somebody that's not necessarily financially inclined and doesn't follow markets yeah. and investing. You made the note that this moves into the top 10 on the, into the top 10 of your list of, uh, financial reads out there. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and it's it's funny as as my career has kind of shaped, you know, I've gotten different books in and out mm -hmm. of there, but this is definitely, you know, I'm leaning more towards books like the the soul of money and and how we think about things as opposed to how to invest and right. how to be successful financially versus how to deal with, you know, money <laughs> in general and put it in a different context. And this is yeah, definitely um, towards the top of the list of that. For yeah, me. that's interesting. I haven't, you know, quantified it, but my my list 15 years ago would have included John Bogle and, you know, oh, yeah. a random walk down Wall Street and, and books like that. And now it's Morgan Housel and The Psychology yeah. of Money and, and Daniel Crosby's Behavioral Investor and, mm -hmm. you know, the things. And, you know, I, I put Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow on the list of like best investment books I've ever read. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it is funny how that evolves over time. You, 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 as as planners, you kind of realize what really matters isn't really the uh, asset allocation formulas. It's the uh, how you think about it, and that gives you the power to to stay in the markets and and let compounding take effect. So, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend to our listeners out there if. Um, Finding out more about money and examining your relationship with money is important to you. This book should be toward the top of your list, along with the one that we mentioned a couple of times, Engineer the Psychology of Money also, I think, <laughs> does a good job of that as yeah, well. Yeah, it's um, one of my favorites. Definitely a different way to think about money in terms of a money book. And, you know, I kind of, I, I say this a lot, but I, I always kind of feel like people fall into two different categories, right? There's the people that are savers. And then there's the people that are spenders. And I think this book kind of helps bridge the gap between those two extremes for both of those. Mm -hmm. It really kind of makes you pause and think about what role do you want money to play in your life and, and how do you want it, you know, how do you want it to be versus how it currently is. So, yeah. Cool. I like it. I have to look for this one. Absolutely, Dave. I appreciate you uh, taking the time and uh, yeah. going through this with me. As always, to our listeners, if you have questions on this or anything else that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we would love to hear them. You can email us at info at srbadvisors.com. Dave, Thanks, Nick. as always, yeah. it's been a pleasure. 
Have a great day. Gather around and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.